Hi everyone, just a note up top that in this episode we will be talking briefly about suicide and suicidal ideation, so if this is a sensitive topic for you, please be mindful. At the end of the episode and in the episode show notes, I'll provide some resources that you can access if you or someone you know and love is experiencing suicidal ideation. If this is you, please don't hesitate to reach to someone for help. your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Hallie Carberry. Hallie is a licensed therapist in Michigan and a coach in Michigan and beyond for women experiencing low desire. She is simultaneously recovering from and treating those with religious trauma. Hallie is a cult survivor who is deconstructing and creating a new normal after leaving religion and her marriage. Welcome, Hallie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So every episode that I'm recording. I'm starting with the question, what does wellness mean to you? So I'm going to throw that out there for you and see where we go. I love that question. I think it's like, it's sort of intentionally broad, sort of casting a wide net because people have so many different definitions and experiences of what wellness means. Um, I think for me, this is somewhat how I define it to my clients as well, but also how I've Um, been experiencing wellness as of late is to be able to think um, balanced thoughts is a really big piece of what keeps me feeling well and whole Um, and also to feel feelings that are appropriate for the context of what I'm experiencing Um, but to allow myself to move through those feelings in increasingly expansive ways, because what that used to look like for me was very different. Um, Emotion can often be demonized in high demand, high control religious spaces, uh, whether that's directly or indirectly demonized, um, regardless, emotion is just a tricky thing in a high demand, high control space. So wellness for me these days has to do with um, thinking balanced thoughts, ones that don't have lots of magical thinking in them or cognitive distortions to throw out, you know, some psychobabble terms and uh, to allow myself to experience the emotion that just comes along with being human and not to shame myself for that, not to judge myself for that, and to allow emotion to exist inside of me and also to be processed somatically or in my body um, is a really important part of what wellness means to me. And so I do these days lean into a lot of like um, somatic practices. So uh sort of the two inhale breaths and then the long exhale is a key part of my toolbox these days. I'm pretty physically active. 
<clears throat> and it's interesting, like experiencing like emotion as I move my body is something that is new for me. I never made that mental connection before. Um, but sometimes I'll be working out and I'm just doing something like, you know, bicep curls or something. I'm like, oh man, like I'm feeling like anger <laughs> right now as yes. I move my body in this way. Like, why is that happening? But it's that mind body connection mm. um, that is a big part of my experience of wellness these days. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love, and there's so much there that I, I want to get into. And just to comment on that last piece, I have noticed recently something very similar that if I don't do hot yoga has become my like practice. If I don't do that on a regular basis, I like get irritable. Totally. I need the physical outlet to be able to feel. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there is so much there. We're going to dive in. I, I'm, I'm thinking back to all the things you said, starting with the balanced thought piece. That was the very mm-hmm. first thing I think you said. And I, I'm curious what that means for you, balanced thinking. Mm, yeah. Well, a lot of the work that I do with clients, um, or some of it, has to do with understanding the ways that our thoughts can get distorted, um, those thought errors that come up. And, uh, you know, that can be like black or white thinking, that can be like should statements, like we sort of order our lives along all of these shoulds or musts or oughts. A lot of that for me was informed by um, fundamentalist religion. So making sure that my thinking isn't still fundamentalist, even though I've left that belief system, because the remnants of being in a fundamentalist belief system, it's sort of like water damage after a flood. It's like Mm. maybe the flood subsided, but the water damage is still there and it can kind of stink up the place, if you will. So I still have to be mindful that I'm not thinking in these rigid ways about myself, about relationships, about other human beings in my life, about how I should be or what a good life should be. Um, So balanced thinking in that way has become really important to me. So that's, that's most of what I mean when I say balanced thoughts, but that for me also has a lot to do with, um, what I would, what I would, you know, sort of oversimplified, but call it codependency. Mm -hmm. Um, if I'm thinking in a balanced way in general about myself, then I don't get into these like codependent sort of places in my life where I'm taking more ownership than is mine to take in relationships, which I think also harkens back to some of our, I should speak for myself, some of my fundamentalist upbringing. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. (laughs) So yeah, this, um, this past year for me was really like reckoning with some of the codependency that existed for me, both in the way that was sort of systematically programmed into me, but then also the way that I took that on for myself, you know, not being okay unless others are okay with the choices that I'm making in my life or taking too much ownership for how other people feel about the choices that I'm making in my life. And that becomes really tricky when our thoughts are not balanced. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I know you just sort of gave a a little tidbit about codependency, but it's such a buzzword right now in social media and and rightly so, but I'm curious if you could um like say what you mean by codependency. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot and say like a super academic definition, mm-hmm. but when you're working with people or when you think about it in terms of your own experience, what is codependency? Yeah, I definitely don't feel equipped to give like a perfect definition, but definitely like for my own experience, I think a lot of it boils down to this really important concept that exists in the codependency literature, which you can read about. But for me, it has a lot to do with the difference between self-esteem and other esteem. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, all of us, it's, it's healthier for all of us if we can operate from a place where we generally esteem ourselves well. Um, we generally esteem ourselves accurately. So, you know, I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, I am aware of um, my, my uh, beautiful contributions to my relationships. I'm aware of some of the ways in which I operate in an unhealthy way in relationships, but I'm overall, I'm esteeming myself accurately. And I'm also esteeming myself as being precious and valuable and worthy of connection, regardless of whether or not I'm perfect, if you will. Um, So self-esteem has really become something that I lean into a lot, especially after recognizing some of the ways that I may have actually been codependent on the belief system that I was a part of, and even, dare I say, codependent on a divinity um, in order to esteem myself well. And that's where other esteem comes in and um, something that I have had to wrestle with and reckon with so much inside of myself, this idea that... um, you know, my esteem of myself depends on my perception of how others perceive me. Mm. It's so wordy, but it's like a really important definition to get right. Um, Yeah. Can you say it again, actually, just so we can hear it again? Absolutely. Yeah. So this difference, this, this, uh, this idea about other esteem in comparison to self-esteem is where we rely too much on our perception of how others perceive us mm. in order to feel okay about ourselves. And so reckoning with codependency in myself has looked like, am I okay to deconstruct my previously constructed religious beliefs if others are not okay with that, and if if their perception of me changes because of that, and to get more technical, it's really my perception of their perception changing, because mm-hmm. unless we're inside of someone else's brain, we don't know exactly what their thoughts and perceptions are. So it's really more my perception or my understanding of their perception changing about me. It's a little tricky, but um, that has been a huge part of my journey to wellness over the past year, because not only did I deconstruct 
my previously held religious beliefs. I also divorced in a system that, um, let's just say it this way, the perception definitely changes Mm. when you initiate a divorce. And it was initiated by me. For me, deconstruction and divorce happened like simultaneously. So my world changed radically and rapidly. And um, having to deal with the shame because of the codependency that existed for me, um, where I was reliant on how other people perceived me or how I thought they perceived me in order to just feel okay about myself and okay about my decisions in order to esteem myself well, that all had to be unraveled in order for Mm -hmm. me to be well. Yeah. Yeah. There again, so much there. I love this. And I'm really curious if you can speak to what that looked like in like really practical ways. Like how did you actually do this on the ground while you're going through such major life changes? Oh man, that's a good question. The how of it all. Um, (laughs) Not to be prescriptive for other people, but just to hear a little bit about, you know, what this looks like in real time. Yeah. You know, for me, at least, just as I reflect back um, on how I did this, and to be fair and clear, I don't think I've done it perfectly. And I don't think I'm, you know, at the end of the journey by any means. Mm -hmm. But I really hit um, like a proverbial rock bottom where I was either going to uh, not survive um, the loss of others' perceptions of me, meaning there was so much shame about these ways that um, my life was not approved of, my my. the changes in my life were not approved of by the network of people that had been around me for my entire life. I, I truly felt like I could not survive that. Um, and so it was sort of a, it was like, it was ripped away from me in a way. Um, like there's so many analogies that, that pop up, but I basically got to a point where the shame was so intense. This reliance on other esteem was so intense that if I did not make the shift into uh, self-esteem, I I would not have survived. And and I don't mean that lightly. Like I was, um, I was actively suicidal for quite a while this past year. And I reached a point where I thought, if I'm going to survive this, I have to let it go. Mm. I have to let go of the reliance on other esteem. And that's not really how I was thinking about it at the time in those like, you know, psychology terms, but it, it sort of happened all at once for me. Um, it was at the, it was Thanksgiving of last year, actually, I remember it very precisely. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to survive, I have to find a way to be okay with, um, what is going on in my life and what my choices are. And, you know, I think there's a lot of self-compassion that 
that happens when you make that shift, or maybe it's before you can make the shift. I'm mm-hmm. not sure exactly um, how it all worked out for me, but it really was sort of a a sudden shift where I thought, I, ha- I if I'm going to survive this, I have to be okay within myself with who I am and the choices that I'm making and what is real and most true for me. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. I think it's, it's really helpful to hear the, like the, the reality of what this looks like and how, oh. um, I mean, really how high control groups and, and many other things, but th- they're very harmful and not just in a, um, an intellectual sense, but like in a surviving sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I will, at the end of the episode, I will link to some resources for people who, if, if you're experiencing or know of someone who's experiencing suicidal ideation, will provide all those resources at the end. Um, because that is very real and not talked about enough, I think, within these communities of just the impact that that the deconstruction process can have, mm-hmm. you know, not even the, the religious experiences themselves, but even just trying to untangle from them. Yeah, absolutely. It's like your whole world um, kind of comes crashing down and the same like footholds that you used to uh, utilize in the past, whether that be like um, certainty from religious texts or um, prayer in moments where you don't feel uh, like you can survive those moments, those same footholds are no longer there. And so then you have to rapidly develop new coping mechanisms. And in the midst of so much change, that's so hard to do. And it's interesting because, you know, I was going through all of this as a therapist, as a practicing mm-hmm. therapist. And so there was a lot of shame about being a therapist experiencing suicidality and being a divorcing couples therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so interesting, like being here right now in this moment, I feel, this is going to sound crazy, but like I almost feel more pride about what I have journeyed through as a therapist than sort of the losses that were there that, you know, induced so much shame for me. Like I am really and truly okay with being a divorced couples therapist. I am really and truly okay with being a therapist who has had mental health crises. And I feel proud of myself just as a fellow human being to have been able to walk alongside my clients as they journey through their suffering um, as someone who is a fellow sufferer. And, you know, therapists are just human, right? And sometimes we go through some real human experiences. Um, and so it's interesting just even looking back and seeing like how much shame at the time I had at what I was going through and like, how could I possibly be a mental health professional who's experiencing all of this? And now sitting here in this moment, it's like, 
wow, I, I feel so much like gratitude for the person who journeyed through that and Mm -hmm. journeyed through it alongside people as well. So it's an interesting sort of reflection to be able to have now. Yeah. I'm curious if it sounds like there was a time when pride and gratitude were not the primary emotions in response to this sort of parallel experience you're having with your clients. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. 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 It was, it was, I mean, some days it was like opening my laptop and wiping tears away from my eyes and uh, trying to be present with someone. I mean, in those moments, it's hard to feel gratitude and pride (laughs) about, about the experience. So it was different for sure. Yeah. And another way of needing to survive, right? There's the literal staying alive survival, but there's also, this is how you make your living. Yeah. And so I need to somehow figure out how to continue to do this work mm-hmm. in order to take care of myself and my family, because this is my income as well. Yes. And that's sort of been like an interesting reality of being in this field is that we absolutely care about our clients. No no question Mm -hmm. about it. And it's our livelihood. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually at the time, because of the divorce, I needed to take on even more clients than I had in the past. And so there was this like collapse of my personal world, but my professional world was um, needing to ramp up. And so there was this extra demand on me professionally, which needed to be there. um, But that was certainly what contributed to that all being hard at the time. Yeah. And you talked a lot within that story and at the very beginning about feeling your feelings as part of how you stay well. And I'm curious what that journey has been like, knowing that you can't separate all these different threads, they're all intertwined. But what have you come to learn about emotions that's different than how you were raised? Mm, That's such a good question. I don't know that I can like fully articulate it, but I'll give it a shot. Cause then like, as I, as you mentioned in, in the intro, it's like, I'm still healing from all of this and I'm now, um, you know, treating people who have experienced the harms, um, of high control religion too. So I'm very much a fellow, fellow journeyer, but I think, you know, growing up the way I did, we did a lot of spiritual bypassing of emotion. And so, you know, if you were feeling depressed, for example, it, you know, could have had something to do with how you weren't uh, relying on uh, the joy of the Lord, or you were not trusting in God's plan for you if you were feeling anxious. Um, And so a lot of time, negative emotion was immediately accompanied with shame for experiencing that negative emotion. Because Mm -hmm. if you were doing faith or religion uh, adequately, then it's like that emotion shouldn't have been there Mm -hmm. in the first place. And I like to say to my clients, where there's shoulds, there's likely shame. And so that's what I mean when I say those negative emotions were almost immediately accompanied by shame is because if I had been doing religion well, then those shouldn't have existed. So flipping that has been a process 
for sure. Like when I'm feeling really low, um, to not go immediately into here's why you shouldn't be feeling that way. And I will say as a therapist that also, it's not just about the religious piece for me. It's also sometimes those shoulds come in as like, as a mental health professional, you should be able to get it together a little bit more than you are in this moment. Um, I think some of us experience that to varying degrees, but flipping that has looked like, actually, this is like, not only a healthy part of being human, having uh, the full spectrum of emotion, but it's also a beautiful part mm-hmm. of, of being human and allowing emotion to exist in, in its full spectrum and learning to provide helpful containers for myself, helpful contexts for myself for that emotion. Like I do that with my kids, but I had not previously had the forethought or the self-compassion to do that for myself. Um, like, I don't believe in any, in any world that my kids shouldn't be experiencing emotion. Mm. Um, and so I allow space for them to experience emotion and attempt to provide a helpful context for them. Like, you know, you, you really didn't want to leave the playground. You're feeling like so disappointed about that. Um, and that makes sense. I can't let you kick me or pull on my arm because that hurts me, but it makes sense that you're feeling disappointed. And so if you need to, you know, have some time to just kind of be on the ground and feel your feelings, that's okay. I'm going to be right over here. If you need some comfort, like it's, it's so much more natural for me to talk to my kids like that than it is to give myself that same space and grace to do that. So, you know, nowadays I will, you know, practice some, what I call like compassionate holds for myself where maybe I'm in the shower and I'm like, for me, whatever, for whatever reason, like crying is just a lot more like accessible in the shower. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's already water. So <laughs> yep. let's just do it. Um, my mascara is off anyway. And yes. so when I'm feeling those feelings, I might've previously sort of said to myself, like, even if it wasn't fully conscious, just sort of some version of like, what's wrong with you? Like pull it together. Like you, you got to get out there and, and, and live your life. And if you were thinking more balanced thoughts, or if you were relying on God enough, then you wouldn't need to feel like this. And maybe more of that was like subconscious than conscious. But nowadays what I'll do to just completely flip that is like, you're feeling something right now. And I will actually like kind of give myself a gentle hug in the shower and I will allow myself to cry and not feel ashamed for crying or at least attempt to not feel shame about the crying and I'll say what do you need right now and that might be something that I would have asked my kids but I would have never thought to ask that for myself Mm. and allowing that need to just be what it is without judgment and allowing the feeling to be what it is without judgment is I think to answer your question if I'm remembering it correctly like how I allow those feelings to just be what they are. 
Yeah. And it sounds like you didn't use this language, but it's almost a reminds me of a reparenting because the Mm -hmm. way you speak to your children is so similar to the way you just spoke to yourself in that example. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And children know how to feel. They naturally know how to feel. They know how to let it be in their bodies. And it's adults that have like told them to suppress that. So allowing your kids to to lay on the ground and have a temper tantrum, that's their way of feeling what they're feeling. And it's, yeah, what a gift to give them to just create space, right? So simple, but so important. Yeah, I think the more I reparent, as you said, the more I reparent myself, the more room there is for them too. Because there are times that I... I struggle, you know, with their big feelings mm-hmm. and I might not say it out loud to them, but it's like, Oh my God, like another temper tantrum, another meltdown. Like I don't have the bandwidth for this <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, but the more space I allow for myself, the more I allow for them and maybe vice versa too. So yeah, definitely mm-hmm. the reparenting process stands out to me. Um, leaving, there's a book that's been really formative for me this past year that talks a little bit about that reparenting process. If anyone is looking for a resource for that, it's um, Leaving the Fold by Dr. Marlene Winnell. And she has a whole section in the book that's sort of about reparenting or being with the inner child. And that's been really useful for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great book. I I read that early on in my deconstruction process. And I'm going to link to the show notes because she does have a lot of really valuable like practices that you can do. Um, And I know, gosh, Hallie, I could talk to you forever about this, um, but I want to respect your time and I want to like end on a maybe a little bit of a lighter note. So I think talking about books might be a good segue into like, are there things that you're reading, watching, listening to, doing that maybe allow you to experience pleasure and joy and take a break from all the hard work that you've been doing over the mm. past few years. Yeah. That's, it's interesting that you say that. I was just talking to a friend about how there's like, there's this like healing hustle culture that yes. I think we can fall into where it's like, we have to be like constantly progressing in our healing journey. Otherwise, I don't know, we're, we're failing at it or something. And that's probably actually some fundamentalist thinking. For sure. There. And um, in terms of what I'm reading that is allowing me to just be, um, I, well, and listening to, I, to be honest, I don't read much like physical, <laughs> many physical books these days, just because I'm so um, busy with kiddos and life and stuff. But uh, this might be like a, a, a cheesy one or something, but um, Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach have a podcast that is just sort of like my happy place to go. And it's a little bit of like self-help. It's a little bit of like they'll have mental health professionals. But for me, it's like this perfect intersection of like, you know, still processing some things related to wellness but also they're hilarious. Oh, and I should mention that her sister, um, Amanda, I can't remember her last name now, is is on it too. It's called We Can Do Hard Things. Yes. Um, and that is, I listen to a ton of podcasts, but that's my go-to one. Mm. And then honestly, like this might sound silly, but 
to just allow myself to watch TV, like whether it's reality TV, whether it's like documentaries, whatever it is, not feeling guilty about that. There is this really like incessant message that I received growing up, which is like, we need to redeem the time. Like there's, we have to constantly be, whether it's like evangelizing or, you know, uh, progressing God's kingdom or serving others or being in helpful, um, serving roles to, to others, like to just do something for pleasure and to just relax. It was almost impossible for me to do that without feeling some sort of guilt for that Mm. because time is fleeting. You never know when Jesus is coming back. So allowing myself to like lay in the sun and not be like reading at the same time because it's like, okay, I need to relax, but how can I relax productively was a hurdle for me to overcome. Mm -hmm. And so actually just watching TV has been an important piece of me just honoring myself um, and experiencing wellness in that way. Yeah, I love that. And I didn't know this was lodged deep in my memory, but when you said redeeming the time, I was like instantly brought back to high school. I went to private Christian school, pretty conservative. And that was our theme for one of the years. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> That's, yeah. 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 Like, is. let's just, let's just be right. We don't need to be striving in every moment. Love exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's so much that I, I want to talk to you about, but I know you do a lot of work in sex therapy, couples therapy, and all of that stuff is out in the ether on your Instagram page, which I definitely recommend everyone checks out. So where can people find you if they want to learn more or work with you? Because I know you're a coach, which means you can work with people, right? Like worldwide or just within the US? Yeah, it's really international um, because it's sort of not under the therapy license, which is is state by state. Um, So yeah, it technically would be international um so yeah you can find me on instagram at the deconstructing sex therapist um, with a period the deconstructing period sex therapist and then i have been attempting to launch my website for a long time it is within days of being finished and so you'll see that in my um in my description under my instagram handle very soon for the website for coaching stuff Awesome. And if that website is up by the time this episode airs, I'll be sure to link the website in the show notes as well, but definitely the Instagram page and send people your way along with all of the really great resources you've mentioned today. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's been so nice to talk with you, Carrie. I just, I really feel like we can talk for hours. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here, Hallie. Thanks for having me. Hey there. It's me again, Carrie, your friend, the therapist. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about how you can support yourself or somebody who might be experiencing suicide. So if you listen to the episode, you may have heard us talk a little bit about suicide, and I want to have a little bit more of an in-depth discussion about how you can get support and how you can help the people around you. So it's just me, no guest, giving you some info. So a few warning signs for yourself or for somebody else. Uh, Suicide is rarely a spur-of-the-moment decision. 
before people attempt suicide, there's usually clues and warning signs, though not all of the warning signs I'm about to share with you automatically indicate somebody's feeling suicidal. When in doubt, however, get help. You never want to underestimate. So some of the warning signs could be saying things like, I can't go on, nothing matters anymore, I'm thinking of ending it all. Another warning sign could be becoming withdrawn or depressed, behaving recklessly, getting their affairs in order and giving away valued possessions, and abusing drugs or alcohol. Some situations that might potentially increase someone's risk for suicide. Again, these situations don't necessarily mean somebody will feel suicidal or will attempt suicide, but situations that might be a risk factor could include a family history of suicide or violence, sexual or physical abuse, death of a close friend or family member, divorce or separation, ending a relationship, failing academic performance, impending exams or exam results, job loss or problems at work, impending legal action, or recent imprisonment or upcoming release from prison. Some behaviors that might indicate somebody is feeling suicidal or might increase the risk that somebody attempts suicide could be crying, fighting, breaking the law intentionally, acting impulsively, self-mutilation or self-harm, writing about death and suicide, previous suicide behavior. This is the number one indicator of future suicidal ideation is a history of some sort of behavior related to suicide. Uh, Other behaviors that increase risk could be extremes in behavior or changes in behavior and searching the internet for websites about suicide or suicide methods. Some other warning signs could be physical changes such as lack of energy, disturbed sleep patterns such as sleeping too much or too little, loss of appetite, sudden weight gain or weight loss, an increase in minor illnesses, change of sexual interest, sudden change in appearance or lack of interest in appearance. Again, some more warning signs that include thoughts and emotions, could be thoughts of suicide, of course, loneliness or lack of support from family and friends, rejection, feeling marginalized, deep sadness or guilt, feeling unable to see beyond a narrow focus, daydreaming, anxiety and stress, helplessness or loss of self-worth. But so a few more things about suicide prevention. If you have a friend or family member that you're concerned about, How can you help? Number one, listen to them and take them seriously. Don't judge, don't give advice, and don't give your opinions. Just listen. Another way to support somebody that you love who's experiencing suicidal ideation is to be respectful. Be somebody in their life who is trustworthy, respectful, and doesn't necessarily try to take charge or tell them what to do. Another way is to be present. This can be physically present if someone is actively experiencing suicidal ideation or actively attempting suicide. Please stay with that person or stay on the phone with that person while you contact emergency services for help. You can stay with them physically. 
you could also stay with them emotionally in a sense that you maintain a line of communication, not rejecting them or judging them for how they're feeling. Again, make sure the person that you're with or the person you're concerned about knows that you care. Accept and believe them just as they are and please be available to listen. Don't lecture them. This is not the time to offer advice or tell them to cheer up. This will only make them feel more misunderstood. If you're comfortable, you can allow your friend or family member to talk about their suicidal thoughts or plans openly without judging them. This can be really hard to do, but can be really powerful and can take some of the shame out of suicide and suicidal ideation. And of course, so, so important, please help them cope. Once you've fully listened, take time to encourage your friend or family member to explore alternative ways to cope and maybe offer to cope with them. Next, I want to go over some myths about suicide and suicidal ideation. The first myth is that once someone is suicidal, they will be suicidal forever. This is not true. Though people who are feeling suicidal may struggle with these feelings for a long time, the feelings are often temporary, even if just the intensity is the temporary bit, especially if the person seeks out help. Another myth is that if someone tried to kill themselves once, there's a much smaller chance that they will try again. This is false. As many as 80% of all completed suicides occurred after previous attempts. This is especially true for young people. Another myth is that suicidal people clearly want to die. This is not always true. Ambivalence is a marked feature of a suicidal person. Many people who are experiencing thoughts of suicide don't actually want to die, but simply want to escape an unbearable situation. Another myth is that it's a bad idea to ask people if they are suicidal, that talking about suicide might give them the idea that they should kill themselves. In reality, research has shown that talking about suicide does not increase suicidal feelings. On the contrary, talking about it can help diffuse some of the tension and lets the person know that they're cared for. Another myth is that if a depressed or suicidal person feels better, it usually means that the problem has passed. In reality, if someone who has been depressed or suicidal suddenly seems happier, this is actually a warning sign, and please don't assume that the danger has passed. A person having decided to kill themselves may feel, quote, better, or feel a sense of relief having made the decision. Also, a severely depressed person may lack the energy to put their suicidal thoughts into action. Once they regain their energy, they may well go ahead and do it. Another myth is that young men are at the highest risk of killing themselves. While it is true that males between the ages of 18 and 24 are in the group with the highest growth rate of suicide, older men are actually at the highest risk of actually completing suicide. However, women attempt suicide more frequently than men. Men often complete suicide more often as they typically use more lethal methods. Final myth is that people who talk about killing themselves will never do it. Those who kill themselves don't normally talk about it. They just go ahead and do it. This is all a myth. Most people either talk about it or do something to indicate that they are going to kill themselves. There is no need to blame yourself if you didn't see it coming. 
but if you are worried about someone you know, make sure you check out the previous information and some of the posts that I'll post on my therapy page on warning signs and how you can help. Finally, some tips on how to be a good listener. This can be really scary and really hard to do, but here's some do's and don'ts of how to be a good listener. First, some don'ts. Don't look around the room, glance at your watch or check your phone. This indicates that you are actually kind of burdened by needing to listen and that you're not really super invested in what the person is saying. Also, please don't finish their sentences or correct their grammar. Just let them speak. Grammar is not important when it comes to life and death. Please do not interrupt them to tell them how you once had a similar problem. Please do not tell them what you would do in their situation. And please, although it may come from really good intentions, don't say you understand before you've heard the problem. Some tips for how you can be a helpful, active listener for somebody who's currently thinking about suicide. First, give your undivided attention. Allow the other person to sit in silence and collect their thoughts. We don't need to fill the space with words. You can ask questions gently without being too intrusive and encourage them to tell their own story in their own time and always try to see the other person's point of view. And please, 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 if you need immediate assistance or in, are in a life-threatening situation, don't wait to ask for help. You can call 911 if you're currently in crisis. Another thing that can be helpful is to talk to somebody. Even if you don't know where to get support, maybe call a friend, call somebody. Sometimes talking about feelings can help to diffuse them and not make them feel so strong. Some other options could be to contact a 24-7 helpline, such as the National Suicide Hotline, which you can call or text the number 988. Another really excellent resource specifically for LGBT plus youth is the Trevor Project. I will link both of those things in the show notes, as well as links to where you can access all of this information on my Instagram page. I know this was a bit of a heavy closer, but this is such an important topic. Please, please, please take care of yourself, the people around you. We are in this together. It is not self-care, it is community care. So please take care and stay well. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy on my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.